Hello, this is John. Welcome, welcoming you to the 2369 edition of Enfield Talking Newspapers, dateline 14th of December 2023. The readers this week are Sarah, Karis, Jean, and myself, John, and Bill is on the controls. Our title music is Country Rock Polka, composed by Pat Prilly, Ferdinand Bouillon, Harry Breer, and is performed by Jean-Jacques Perry, and is used with his kind permission. The local news stories that we'll be reading will come from the Infant Independent and the Forum Independent, and are their copyright. For the week beginning the 11th of December, sunrise is 07.55, and sunset time is 15.51. We have no special notices. But get in touch with us to share your own news and special announcements because we'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments about Enfield Talking Newspaper, please telephone Diane de Jersey, I'll say that again, Diane de Jersey on 07899 854 582. That's 07899 854 582. She is your listener's representative and she will be pleased to help you. Now Sarah will read. Hello. The Celts celebrated their new year with fire as they believe light and life sprang from death and darkness. New year was first celebrated on the 1st of January in Rome 153 BC and it would be almost 2,000 years before Britain did the same. In 1572, Pope Gregory introduced the Gregorian calendar to establish more consistency around Easter, retaining the 1st of January as New Year's Day. Catholic countries adopted it, but Protestant Britain resisted until 1752, when it finally switched for trading purposes. In the religious and political turmoil of 17th century Britain, a Puritan order banned Christmas until 1660 when it was restored with the monarchy. The Scots, however, continued to frown on Christmas, focusing instead on the secular feast of Hogmanay on the 31st of December. This remained the case for over 300 years. In Celtic times, smoke was believed to ward off evil spirits and fire to entice the sun's return. Fire rituals remained central to festivals in Scotland and northern England. On New Year's Eve in Stonehaven Grampian, a parade of 60 kilted marchers with pipes and drums swirl balls of fire on wire ropes around their heads. In Allendale, Northumberland, a procession of men in fancy dress called geysers, I think, carry tubs of flaming tar above their heads to the town square, where they are launched onto a bonfire, the last one coinciding with midnight when the flames reach their zenith. The old year dies as church bells ring in the new. In fact, church bells are traditionally associated with major public events like royal weddings and it was customary for bells to chime at midnight on New Year's Eve, accompanied by ships' horns in ports and people running onto the streets banging pots and pans. Today, the clock tower at the Palace of Westminster and the chimes of Big Ben herald the new year in the UK. Most places in Britain have a place where crowds gather at major events. In London, the earliest documented gathering on New Year's Eve was in 1878 at St Paul's Cathedral, when people came to hear the newly installed bells ring in the new year. 
Over the years, the crowds grew and became more uproarious until the cathedral authorities tried to stop it, unsuccessfully. On the 2nd of January 1892, the Illustrated London News reported questions of public order and morality. This was echoed in a letter to the Times in 1935. Often the new year breaks upon a scene of horseplay and alcoholic excess. After the Second World War, the London gathering moved again to Trafalgar Square. And since 2004, the gathering place includes the banks of the Thames in view of the London Eye. Old Lang Syne is said to be one of the most popular songs no one knows the words to, but we might have a surprise for you. Scottish poet Robert Burns penned his version of the ancient Scottish song in the 18th century, but few know that it was actually a Canadian who made it widely popular. When band leader Guy Lombardo heard Scottish immigrants singing it in his hometown of Ontario, his band started playing. They performed it at midnight on New Year's Eve at the Roosevelt Hotel Manhattan in 1929, and a tradition was born. First footing, the first foot in the house after midnight, remains common in Scotland, but similar traditions exist elsewhere. To ensure good luck, the first foot should be that of a dark male bearing coal, salt, bread and a dram of whiskey, symbolising warmth, wealth, food and good health. I bet you didn't know this. The dark male is a throwback to Viking days when a fair-haired stranger could mean trouble. In Wales, if the first foot is a woman and a man answers the door, this is considered bad luck. The origins of Hogmanay are obscure. Some say it refers to a smoking stick, others that it's an oat cake. Many Hogmanay celebrations originated from invading Vikings. Today, Edinburgh's is the largest in Britain with an all-night street party. In the Republic of Ireland, New Year's Eve is celebrated by parties with midnight fireworks followed by parades and live music. In Wales, children used to rise at dawn on New Year's Day to visit neighbours, carrying apples skewered with twigs and evergreens to symbolise growth and prosperity. They were greeted with coins. British superstitions concerning chores which must be carried out before midnight on December the 31st include cleaning the house, taking out the ashes from the fire and clearing all debt. New Year's Day in many communities is marked with a public swim to start the new year afresh. Such traditions reflect the inherent symbolism in passing from one year to the next. It's a time for reflection, taking personal stock, renewal and looking forward with hope. The famous diarist Samuel Pepys wrote in December 1661, I have newly taken a solemn oath about abstaining from plays and wine, which I am resolved to keep. I'm feeling a bit sceptical because he lived another 42 years, and what I remember about Samuel Pepys, he wasn't so so abstemious. But anyway, making and breaking New Year's resolutions remains an established part of British culture. New Year's Eve in Britain is a normal working day. New Year's Day was made a public holiday in 1974 and is now regarded as the end of the festive season and a counterpoint to the family focus of Christmas. Brits may spend Christmas with family and see friends on New Year's Eve. Since the millennium, many cities put on grand public firework displays. Typically, a countdown to midnight is followed by singing Auld Lang Syne and people greeting and embracing each other. Celebrations may go on well into New Year's Day. Then it's time to get going on those New Year resolutions. Oh, dear. There's some other, I have some other traditions from around the world. 
As you make your own plans to ring in 2024, consider partaking in one of the New Year's traditions from around the world. The past few years have truly been unlike any other. But one thing has been clear. Certain practices are now more important than ever as they keep us grounded and remind us of the future to he- ahead and what to look out for if you're following any New Year's superstitions. Travel isn't an option for everyone around this time of year, so we're rounded up a few of your favorite New Year's traditions from cultures all over the globe. Pick one that lends itself to virtual celebration or ask friends to join in on the fun. Make traditional New Year's food while you reminisce over the best songs of the year and give each other New Year's gifts or just start a new tradition and watch some of the best New Year's movies instead. May 2024 be a year of good fortune with generous dose of sanity. And don't forget to make those New Year's resolution. We need all the good luck we can get. Now, in the United States, it was alluded to earlier, millions of Americans gather around their television sets or on the streets of Times Square, despite freezing temperatures, to watch the ball drop at the stroke of midnight each year. Kicking off in 1907 to ring in January 1908, New York Times newspaper owner Adolf Ochs created the event to draw attention to the Times' new headquarters, and it's been an annual spectacle and one of the most popular New Year's Eve celebrations ever since. In Brazil, you might head to the beach because it's summer there, says Hudson Bohr, a Brazilian photographer based in New York. Immediately after midnight, you're supposed to jump seven waves while making seven wishes. The tradition is rooted in playing homage to Yamanja, the goddess of water. Before you get in the water, you're supposed to wear all white as it symbolizes purity. In Spain, what you're supposed to do is eat 12 grapes. Starting off the new year by eating 12 grapes, which symbolize each strike of the clock. The tradition of Las Doce Uvas e Desuerte started in the late 19th century and is believed to ward off evil while boasting, boosting your chances of a prosperous and lucky new year. However, this will work only if you manage to eat all the grapes in a matter of seconds, since they need to be gone by the time the clock finishes striking midnight. And that ridiculous sound was me speaking with 12 grapes in my mouth. In Japan, you eat soba noodles. Here's a New Year's appetizer idea. People in Japan kick off the New Year by eating a warm bowl of soba Soba noodles, the tradition dates back to the time of Kamakura period and is tied to a Buddhist temple giving out the noodles to the poor. Because the long, thin noodles are firm yet easy to bite, it is believed eating them symbolizes a literal break away from the old year. In Haiti, you share soup ju mu. January 1st is actually Haitian Independence Day, says Oliver Joseph, a graduate student at Pritzker School of Medicine in Chicago. Because of that, there's an important New Year's tradition meal, traditional meal, because, nah, 
Let me start that again. Because of that, there's an important New Year's traditional meal associated with the holiday. We ate pumpkin soup, soup jumu, because it was a delicacy that enslaved black people were not allowed to have. We often go to other people's houses and bring some of our soup and swap for some of theirs. Everyone makes it a little bit differently. In Denmark, you throw your old plates, chucking plates at your friends, usually singles a conversation going very wrong. But in Denmark, however, New Year's Eve, traditions like this bring your loved ones the best of luck. Tradition has it that the more broken kitchenware you accumulate on your doorstep, the better off you'll be. In Mexico, you give the gift of homemade tamales. Mexico families gather to make New Year's Eve food, especially tamales, which are corn dough stuffed with meat, cheese, and vegetables, all wrapped in husks. And then they hand them out to loved ones on New Year's Eve. On New Year's Day, the warm pockets are often served with menudo, a traditional Mexican soup made from a cow's stomach. Mm. In Colombia, you place three potatoes under your bed. On New Year's Eve, households have a tradition called aguayo, of placing three potatoes under each family member's bed, one peeled, one not peeled, and one only partially peeled. At midnight, each person grabs for one with eyes closed, and depending on the potato they select, they can either expect a year of good fortune, financial struggle, or a mix of both. Now... In Italy, you're supposed to wear red underwear as the ball drops. It's disputed as to why this practice, when and where and how this practice started, but go ahead, give it a try. In Germany, and this one surprises me, in some European countries, including Austria and Germany, watching this black-and-white British comedy sketch, Dinner for One, which was recorded in 1972, has become traditional viewing on New Year's Eve. Some diehards even make the four-course dinner served on the 18-minute sketch. And now for a funny story. My dad gave up smoking cold turkey for New Year's. He's doing better now, but he's still coughing up feathers. Why do you need a jeweler on New Year's Eve to ring in the new year? What was Dr. Frankenstein's New Year's resolution to make new friends? I got a couple of facts um, about New Year's Eve, but some of them have already been usurped by Jean. But I kind of skirt, skirt around it a little bit. But... Um, It's really the pivotal point in the calendar uh, for many people across the world, uh, an excuse to celebrate and let your hair down. It's often celebrated with bottles of bubbly, firework displays, songs to remember, faraway people, and generally one of the final celebrations of the Christmas period leading up to Twelfth Night. NYE, as is often abbreviated, is the most curious and popular global celebrations. In this fact file, we take a look at the everything that you need to know about the event. I wish I'd had some champagne, but there you are. 
uh, including what you can see at first. The country that gets it first is, of course, Australia. They're the first ones to bring in the new year. Um, and, of course, they, they have that wonderful firework display on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Um, billions, we've already talked about the ball drop. I was trying, that was a quiz question earlier on today. What do they call uh, the thing in, New, in Times Square? And, of course, they, what they do is they hold the ball at the top and it's supposed to hit the bottom as soon as the last chime of New Year. Also, there's a couple of things that have been bothering me. What if my dog only brings the ball back when he thinks I like throwing it? And if poison passes its expiry date, is it more poisonous or is it no longer poisonous? And lastly, do twins ever realise that one of them is unplanned? Well, just going to give you a breather if you're still um, in paroxysm of mirth after John's jokes. And um, also, could you... I'm very sorry. <laughs> it's time to be rude. Um, and also, you might have had... A, a, want a little break from New Year. And I'm going to read you something about Enfield. And it's to do with something that's on at the moment at the theatre. And it's quite spooky. And I think this is quite a spooky time of year. It's the Enfield Haunting. And it's related to a play which is on at the moment and which my daughter saw in Brighton, so I've got a first-hand or second-hand experience of it. Anyway, I'll go back to the story. In August 1977, single parent Peggy Hodgson called the police to her rented house at 284 Green Street in Brimsdown, Enfield, saying she had witnessed furniture moving and that two of her four children had heard knocking sounds on the walls. The children included Janet, aged 11, and Margaret, aged 13. A police constable reported witnessing a chair wobble and slide, but could not determine the cause of the movement. Later claims included disembodied voices, loud noises, thrown toys, overturned chairs, and children levitating. Over a period of 18 months, more than 30 people, including the Hodgson's neighbours, paranormal investigators and journalists, said they variously saw heavy furniture moving of its own accord, objects being thrown across a room, and the sisters seeming to levitate several feet off the ground. Many also heard and recorded knocking noise and a gruff voice. The story was regularly covered in the Daily Mirror newspaper until reports came to an end in 1979. Paranormal investigators Maurice Gross and Guy Leon Playfair believed that even though some of the alleged poltergeist activity was proved to be faked by the girls, other incidents were genuine. Others who studied the case included American demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren, who visited the Enfield House in 1978 and were convinced that the events had had a supernatural explanation. However, Janet was detected in trickery a video camera in an adjoining room caught her bending spoons and attempting to bend an iron bar. Gross had observed Janet banging a broom handle on the ceiling and hiding his tape recorder. An American stage magician, Milbourne Christopher, briefly investigated the Enfield occurrences and failed to observe anything that could be called paranormal. He was dismayed by what he felt was suspicious activity on the part of Janet, later concluding that the poltergeist was nothing more than the antics of a little girl who wanted to cause trouble and who was very, very clever. 
Ventriloquist Ray Allen visited the house and concluded that Janet's male voices were simply vocal tricks. Nevertheless, the story of the house and the events there have continued to fascinate people since the 1970s. On the 26th of December 1978, BBC Radio 4 broadcast the documentary The Enfield Poltergeist by BBC reporter Rosalind Morris. Morris visited the Hodgson family on numerous occasions to make this documentary. Since then, there have been a number of documentaries, films, and in the past year, a play about the conjectured poltergeist. The play is entitled The Enfield Haunting and stars well-known actors Catherine Tate and David Threlfall. It premiered at the Theatre Royal Brighton and at Richmond Theatre before moving to the Ambassadors Theatre in London on the 30th of November this year, where it will be until the 2nd of March 2024. My daughter, who lives in Brighton, saw the play and sent me her thoughts on it. She said... The play shows how a young girl appears to go through bouts of possession, exorcist style, and strange things happen in the house, lights go out, furniture moves, and the girl appears to levitate. Men from a group that investigates paranormal activity become interested in the case and spend hours in the house recording the girl and trying to capture evidence of a poltergeist. From the beginning, we are informed that lots of people think the girl is faking her seizures. It's unclear whether her mother, played by Catherine Tate, believes her or not, but she is clearly distressed by her behaviour and is trying to keep the turbulent domestic situation under control. We find out that the parents are separated, the father is violent, drinks, and regularly turns up on Wednesday evenings to collect money. His visits are deeply upsetting for the children and their mother, who are obviously frightened of him, but the mother refuses to move out of the house because they are not well off and she feels it is all they have. I, that's my daughter, had the feeling throughout the play that there, was an, there were an awful lot of men interfering in the lives of this family and trying to exert some sort of control over it. They each had different motivations, but their presence is resisted and discouraged to various degrees by the children and her mother. Morris Gross, the visitor from the Paranormal Activity Group, who is played by David Threlfall, has a weird desire to spend time at the house. One of the girl's young brothers likes him being there because he seems to represent a father figure of sorts, but his sisters seem mistrustful of and hostile to him. It's never openly stated, but it's implied that the various different men, the neighbour, visitor, father, might have sinister interests in the young girls. We learn towards the end that Gross, the visitor from the Paranormal Activity Group, lost his own daughter and she shared the same name as the girl who is supposedly possessed. He seems to think that this girl is a conduit to his daughter's spirit and is desperate to contact her. The girl has increasingly dramatic and violent episodes, nearly strangling herself at one point, leading her shocked sister to admit that they've made it all up because she wants to bring it all to an end. However, the play doesn't make a judgment on whether the strange events are faked or whether there is a supernatural presence. In fact, the ending is very abrupt and offers no neat conclusion about what has happened or why. My reading of the, of the events was that the little girl, who is obviously bright, is reacting to the fear and uncertainty in her own life by acting out this role. What starts out as a joke or a cry for attention transforms into something more unsettling as she realises the effect she has on the adults around her. The fact that they take her seriously is, I think, a surprise. She displays a manipulative streak, especially in relation to the man who's lost his daughter, 
and seems to be acting deliberately at times. But I think fundamentally she's trying to control a situation that she feels... Sorry. She's trying to control a situation that she feels powerless in. I thought, that's my daughter thought, the dramatic effects of the performance were really impressive. The play takes place entirely in the haunted house, which occupies the whole of the two-storey set, with bedrooms upstairs. I think that contributes to the claustrophobic atmosphere. The effects include strobe lighting to capture the actress playing the little girl in the middle of a jump, so that it looks as if she's suspended in mid-air. And there is lots of furniture moving. The girl herself is extremely convincing when she speaks in a deep, rasping voice in her moments of possession. Whether or not, and we're back to me, whether or not the events were entirely faked by clever young girls or there really was some sort of supernatural activity going on, the story continues to excite interest. On the 27th, 27th of October 2023, Apple TV debuted the Enfield Pol- Poltergeist miniseries, filming the documentary in a recreated set of the allegedly haunted house at 284 Green Street, using actors lip-syncing to original tape recordings, archival video footage and modern-day interviews with living witnesses of the events. Anyway, why does January 1st begin the new year? Our celebration of New Year's Day on the January 1st is a human-made creation. It is not precisely fixed by any natural or seasonal marker. It is a civil event, not one defined by nature. Yet for us in the Northern Hemisphere, where daylight recently ebbed to its lowest point and the days are starting to get yet longer again, there's a feeling of rebirth in the air. New Year's resolutions, anyone? So where does the New Year's Day concept come from? It stems from an ancient Roman custom, the feast of the Roman god Janus. He was the god of beginnings, gates, transitions, excuse me, transitions, time, duality, doorways, passages, frames, and endings. This is also where the name for the month of January comes from. And since Janus was depicted as having two opposite faces, one face looking back into the past and the other peered towards the future. Likewise, on January 1st, we look back at the, at the year that has just ended and forward to the new year ahead. To celebrate the new year, the Romans also made promises to Janus. The tradition, the tradition of New Year's resolutions stems from this ancient custom. On January 1st, as the year began, it was customary to exchange cheerful words and good wishes. Shortly afterwards, on January 9th, the Rex Sacrorium, a priesthood associated with the Roman Senate, offered the sacrifice of a ram to Janus. Today, although many do celebrate New Year's Day on January 1st, some cultures and religions have different New Year dates. For instance, Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year. For example, Jews use a lunar calendar and celebrate the new year in the fall on Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the month of Tishri, which is the seventh month of the Jewish year. This date usually occurs in September 
as it did in 2022. Similar to other cultures' New Year's Day, the two-day holiday is both a time of rejoicing and of serious introspection, a time to celebrate the completion of another year while also taking stock of one's life and looking ahead. Chinese New Year is also a famous event, also known as the Lunar New Year, celebrated for weeks in January or early February. The Chinese New Year is the most important of Chinese holidays. Countries in Southeast Asia celebrate it, including China, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, and the Philippines. It is also celebrated in Chinatowns and Asian homes around the world, where it's considered a time to honor deities and ancestors and to be with family. The event always sparks a rush of travel that the New York Times has called the world's largest annual human migration. This year, Chinese New Year celebrations fell on Saturday the 22nd, I beg your pardon, Saturday, January 22nd, 2023, and was the year of the rabbit. Chinese New Year for 2024 will fall on January, February, will fall on Saturday, February 10th, 2024, starting the year of the dragon. Sorry, I missed, that was so bad. Anyway, there's also perihelion, around January 1st. In addition to longer days here in the Northern Hemisphere, there's another astronomical occurrence around January 1 each year that's also related to Earth's year as defined by our orbit around the sun. That is Earth's perihelion, or closest point to the sun, happens every year in early January. In 2023, Perihelion comes on January 2nd, came on January 2nd, right, Uh, January 1st hasn't always been New Year's Day. In the past, some New Year's celebration took place at the equinox, a day when the sun is above Earth's equator and night and day are equal in length. In many cultures, The March or Vernal Equinox marks a time of transition and new beginnings, and so cultural celebrations of a new year were natural for that equinox. The September or Autumnal Equinox also had its proponents for the beginning of a new year. For example, the French Republican calendar, implemented during the French Revolution, and used for about 12 years from the late 1793 to 1805, started its year at the September equinox. The Greeks celebrated New Year on the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. Anyway, happy 2024, everyone. By Bottom line, we celebrate New Year's Day on January 1st by tradition. Our modern New Year's Day celebrations some stems from the ancient two-faced Roman god Janus, after whom the month of January is also named. And now we hope these will make you giggle. What do snowmen like to do on New Year's Eve? Chill out. (laughs) What do you call someone who says they know all the words to Old Lang Syne? A liar. (laughs) 
What do you call someone named Stephen on December 31st? New Year's Steve. Who gets the most excited about the New Year's Eve countdown? Calendar companies. Okay, so we'll be back with more jokes to follow. I think I need to lie down after that one, actually, but there you are. Uh, this poem is uh, published in the memorandum of A.H.H. was written about Alfred Tennyson's friend, Arthur Henry Hallam, who was engaged to Tennyson's sister. Arthur Henry Hallam died suddenly at the age of 22. In this poem, 1809-1892, Tennyson shares about the casting aside of all the bad and painful things of the year, due to the heartache that it brought to him. Tennyson was ready to put the grief behind him, and this could also be considered a New Year's poem started about anew. Alfred Tennyson's first son was named Hallam, after his best friend. The poem is called Ring Out Wild Bells. Ring out wild bells to the wild sky. The flying cloud, the frosty light, the year is dying in the night. Ring out the wild bells and let them die. Ring out the old, ring in the new. Ring happy bells across the snow. The year is going to let them go. Ring out the false, ring in the true. Ring out the grief that saps the mind. For those that are here and we see no more, ring out the feud of the rich and the poor. Ring in redress to all mankind. Ring out the slowly dying cause, the ancient forms of party strife. Ring in the nobler modes of life, with sweeter man manners and purer laws. Ring out the want, the care and the sin, the faithless coldness of the times. Ring out my mournful rhymes, but ring the fuller minstrel in. Ring out the false pride in the place and blood, the civic slander and the spite. Ring in the love of truth and right, Ring in the common love of good. Ring out the old shapes and foul disease. Ring out the narrowing lust of gold. Ring out the thousands of wars old. And ring out the thousand years of peace. Ring out the valiant men and free. The larger hearts, the kindler hand. Ring out the darkness of the land. And ring in Christ's that is to be. And I do have one more fact about New Year's Eve that you might have forgotten. In the year 2000, all the computers and all the clocks went absolutely haywire and they couldn't cope with it, so lots of things had to be cancelled. Well, I hope you're not going to cancel your entertaining because I thought just before we... Well, I don't know if we're going to wind up, but when we do wind up, I hope you will have listened to my advice on giving a party because that's what we all need to do at times of festivity. Now, the days around New Year's Eve and New Year's Day are oftentimes of seeing friends and having parties after the more family-centred Christmas period. 
So I thought you might enjoy some tips if you are planning any sort of festival get-together. And who could be better to offer some advice than the redoubtable Mrs. Beaton in her classic book of cookery and household management, which was first published in 1861? Fortunately, we have the updated version of 1961, the very year of the first edition of the Enfield Talking newspaper, I will remind you. Anyway, we've got this modern advice to you all. This is the cocktail or wine party. Many people deplore the modern fashion of cocktail parties and it is certainly true that conversation at them is often difficult and unsatisfactory. Nevertheless, the cocktail party has its uses. To welcome a newcomer to the social circle, to celebrate some professional success and at a time of festivity, to express in a general way the spirit of hospitality. Inviting the right numbers is one important point. Rooms should be comfortably full, but people should have room to move about. Inviting the right type of guests to mix well together is also vital. It is useless to ask 30 or 40 ill-assorted people and expect them to mix, even under the stimulus of a good cocktail, for this type of party does not allow much time for the leisurely exploration and appreciation of other people's personalities. At the cocktail party, and we have to listen carefully to this, it is important that someone who knows what to do is in charge of the drinks. At a wine or sherry party, an increasingly popular alternative to the cocktail party proper, a choice of three or four different wines is offered. It is usually possible to arrange with the wine merchant for supplies on a sale or return basis to obviate the danger of running out of drinks, yet avoid unnecessary expense. Food is kept to a minimum. Plates of crisps, small pieces of cheese, cheese straws, savoury biscuits and possibly a few canapes are all that is necessary. At a wine party, sweet biscuits or pingers of plain cake may also be offered, but the food is always secondary to the drinks. It is best to state on the invitation what time the party ends. About two hours is the usual duration, and this is not merely to indicate to your guests how late they may arrive, up to half an hour before the end, or to encourage them to leave promptly, but also to give some advance notice as to whether solid fare will be provided or whether they should make plans for a meal. At a gathering lasting longer than two hours or continuing over recognised meal time, the host or hostess ought to offer some satisfying food and her party will then be buffet supper party. <laughs> so, what do New Year's parades have in common with Santa Claus? No one is ever awake. Uh, no one is ever awake to see them. Dracula passed out at midnight on New Year's Eve. There was a countdown. Youth is when you're allowed to stay up late on New Year's Eve. Middle age is when you're forced to. Knock knock. Who's radio? Radio. Radio not. It's a new year. Right. So, do you know, I actually don't get it either. <laughs> I have to be honest. Ready or not, we all got it. We're all together on it now. Thank you, people. Thank you ever so much, listeners. <laughs> okay. So, 
what are the lyrics to Old Lang Syne and what does Old Lang Syne actually mean? We all know Old Lang Syne from bleary-eyed New Year's Eve renditions, but have you ever wondered exactly what the words mean and where they come from and what about the tune? Most of us will know Old Lang Syne from the joyful New Year's Eve festivities, joining friends and family in raising our voices to welcome in a new year. But how many people can truly say they know they know the words beyond the first verse? As for the melody, it predates any New Year's celebrations as we know them and has been used by lots like lots by the likes of Beethoven, Hayden and even Cliff Richard. What are the lyrics to Old Lang Syne? First verse. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and old Lang Syne? Chorus. For old Lang Syne, O oh joy, for old Lang Syne, we'll take a cup of kindness yet for old Lang Syne. Second verse. And surely you'll be your pint stop and surely I'll be mine, and we'll take a cup of kindness yet for old Lang Syne. And then the chorus revisited, and then the third verse, we twa hey run about the braes and poured the gowans fine, but we've wandered money a weary fit sin old Lang Syne. And then the chorus... For old Lang Syne, oh joy, for old Lang Syne, we'll take a cup of kindness yet for old Lang Syne. Fourth verse. We, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, folks. Thank you for bearing with my pronunciation. We twa hey paddled in the burn, frae morning sun till dine, but seas between us braid hair road in old Lang Syne. And then the chorus, and then finally the fifth verse. And here's a hand, my trusty fair, and gee's a hand of thine, and we'll take a right good willy wart for old Lang Syne. Thank you for bearing with me with that one. So, what does old Lang Syne mean? For most accurate plain English interpretation of the piece's famous title is Old Long Since for, or For the Sake of Old Times. The song itself is reflective in nature and is basically about two friends catching up over a drink or two, their friendship having been long and occasionally distant. The words were written by Scottish poet Robert Burns in 1788, but Burns himself revealed at the time of composing it that he had collected the words after listening to the verse of an old man on his travels, claiming that his version of Old Lang Syne marked the first time it had been formally written down. However, an earlier ballad of James by James Watson named Old Long Sign since uh, sorry Old Long Sign dates back as far as 1711 and 
use of the title phrase can be found in poems from as early as the 17th century, specifically works by Robert Ayton and Alan Ramsey. What is the tune to Old Lang Syne? The tune is thought to stem from a traditional folk song collected in the Rude Folk Song Index. It's listed as hashtag 6294. The famous tune is loosely based on the pentatonic five-note scale and has been borrowed and quoted by countless composers and writers. Beethoven even wrote an arrangement of Old Lang Syne as part of his 12 Scottish folk songs from 1814. One of the more unusual and most famous uses of the tune came in 1999 when Cliff Richard used the melody for his single Millennium Prayer in which he sang the words of the Lord's Prayer over the familiar tune. When do people sing Old Lang Syne? Old Lang Syne is most famously sung by revellers at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve every year. This tradition began in Scotland where Hogmanay would be marked by singing by the singing of the song while singers join hands to form a large circle. Apart from New Year's Eve, the song was also sung at Burns Night celebrations, the Edinburgh Millery Tattoo, at passing out parades for the Royal Navy and for many other military bodies across the world. Thank you very much, Paris. I think that was a difficult one to read. Well, believe it or not, we have not been drinking. We've all been drinking water. And that's all that's left for us to say to you, really, is have a very happy new year, a healthy new year, and a very peaceful new year. So, we've reached the end of our programme for this week. Thank you for listening. And from the team of Sarah, Karis, Jean, and myself, John, it's Bill on the controls, and we may all say together... Goodbye. Happy New Year. Yay. Happy New Year. <laughs>